0: Hello and welcome to the Muscle Engineer Podcast. I am your host, Sotak Andrei, and this is episode 10, in which I'm about to be joined by Trevor Johnson. Trevor is a personal trainer and a fitness consultant and an overall super smart evidence-based guy. I think we um, first came across each other on YouTube or uh, in uh, some of the Facebook groups we are both uh, members in. And um, I was impressed by his uh, in-depth scientific knowledge and at the same time practical takeaways then i uh, saw him be very transparent about his past um, alcohol abuse issues and um, then i followed his journey towards bettering his body composition and uh, losing 50 pounds and that's when i reached out to him and um, invited him to sit down and uh, talk with me because i uh, I was sure that he would offer some unique insights into how he overcame alcohol addiction and um, also some other controversial topics such as uh, sugar addiction and um, how much control we really have over our behavior. So uh, during a conversation, we touch on all that and um, we also discuss his dieting approach, the main characteristic of which was the super high protein intake he followed and uh, we also discussed some training stuff, and since he is, um, well, I wouldn't say a promoter, but he's definitely a practitioner of a more lower volume, higher intensity approach. And um, we dive into why he prefers that method, and he also outlines some mistakes people make when following such a training strategy. So overall, I highly enjoyed this conversation, and um, if you listen to the episode, you will hear me towards the end say that uh, We should wrap this up because we could probably talk for hours and uh, after I stopped the recording, we actually did just that and we talked for another, I think, three hours or so. So that tells a lot about um, how much we both love this uh, whole fitness stuff and how many things we could have kept talking about. So uh, let's not waste any more time and uh, let's roll with uh episode 10 of the muscle engineer podcast with trevor johnson trevor johnson welcome to the podcast hello everybody out there um we've been trying to schedule this for a while so i'm i'm glad and i'm happy that it has finally happened
1: yeah that's kind of my fault i'm horrible with scheduling <laughs> so no worries
0: so um there are a number of topics i would like to go through and um just to kick things off um I know you have some history with um, alcohol issues, and I don't know how much you want to go into the into that, or how exactly that kind of came along with your fitness um, interest. I don't know which one was first. So, could you please give a bit of uh, background? Not necessarily anything personal. Just uh, maybe how that uh, started and your whole fitness um interest and this relationship to the alcohol issues
1: yeah so yeah i don't know start off like an aa meeting like i'm trevor i'm alcoholic (laughs) just go from there um yeah pretty much like uh i've brought it before like when i've recorded stuff like it's very much when you go to fitness and alcoholism it's such a dichotomous thinking type of thing because it's like, I really like fitness, I like working out, but at the same time, you do this whole thing that's totally destructive, and you can never be in shape for it. So you kind of go back and forth. So for me, for years, it was just kind of a back and forth, like you try to work out, and then you'd also have this whole thing of wanting to just totally be self-destructive and eat whatever you want and drink and stay up till 3 in the morning. So that was kind of the thing I kind of went back and forth on for years. And that kind of started really when I was... I'm 28 now. That started about when I was 17 is when I first started dabbling and drinking and stuff. And then I got divorced probably about two years ago. And then for about a year, it just got horrible where it was almost on a daily basis. I was barely working out at all. And then it kind of got to, I would say about December of 2016. And then you kind of get to a point where you think you're balancing everything fine. You're still working out, but then you catch yourself in the mirror one day and you're like, wow, I really have let myself get really out of hand. And this isn't just a thing where I'm balancing, I'm losing. And so at that point it's like, I went on the whole weight loss thing. And then I'm like, I lost about 50 pounds the last year. And that was a big part was just quitting the drinking aspect. And really, like, putting that on the back burner and being like, I can't do that if I want this goal. So it went from kind of being dichotomous and trying to balance to really being like, I just have to get rid of this thing and really just focus on fitness. And so that's kind of, for me, we're things kind of start to turn around a little bit, if that kind of covers it a little bit there.
0: Yeah, for sure. So it's not like you went into the fitness thing to kind of find as a use it as an escape. It was already part of your life, and the two kind of just interacted.
1: Yeah, it was to a degree. Like, it was always part of my life, but I would say with the whole drinking aspect to getting rid of that, fitness took a way bigger role. So it's like at night or something, like instead of... You know, I, I'm free at nine and all the liquor stores close at 10 instead of going and, you know, having nothing to do and having that is kind of a trigger just to have that free time. It's like, well, I'm going to go to the gym now and I'm going to do cardio for an hour, like just to kind of focus on something. And really, especially with the whole weight loss thing and being like, I want to lose 50 pounds, that becomes kind of a central goal. And so instead of you just being aimless, because when you're aimless and you have nothing planned, you have no goals in that aspect, it's really easy just to be like, well, why can't I drink right now? like that there's no negative aspect of that when it gets to be the negative aspect is you're not going to reach your goal then it's like that's where fitness I think for me took a much bigger role in terms of just you know taking fitness and just shoving it in that gap where the drinking was it was kind of a really big thing for me at least
0: yeah because with the fitness um, especially with fat loss you can see um, week-to-week changes and uh, after a certain point even daily changes Whereas if you kind of go down the unhealthy behavior route, especially with something like smoking or drinking, if you don't uh, get into a caloric excess, if you just maintain your weight, um, you just kind of look roughly the same day to day and uh, the detrimental effects manifest themselves in the years rather than on the weeks or months with something like um, food um, over. I don't don't even want to call it abuse. (laughs) But simply exaggeration, I guess.
1: Well, I think you even see that too with people that, you know, aren't alcoholics and stuff. Like I made a video, I don't know, months ago, back when I was still doing that on a regular basis. And you have people, you know, who diet Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And they're in, you know, an 800 calorie deficit. And they're doing great. And then they go on Saturday and they go out for drinks with friends and they don't realize the three margaritas they have are 250 calories each. And they never factor that in. And then all of a sudden, just, you know, going out and kind of just having fun, your whole deficit's ruined for the week. And so then they go from week to week to week. And they're like, why aren't I losing any weight? I'm working so hard. It's like, well, because you're ruining it all during the weekend. Like, you're doing great five-sevenths of the time. But, I mean, if you kind of ruin it on the weekends you're just not going to make any progress. So if, like what you're saying, like you just kind of go through and maybe you'll just maintain, but you're putting in a lot of work and you're not seeing any changes.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, just before we go deep into your uh, overall fatless journey, I uh, I have some questions that I think you can give some pretty unique insights into. So you mentioned that you previously thought that well you're balancing the drinking with your fitness and it's no big deal, And I think many people have this uh, idea, especially when there are articles written about this topic. Most of them just to be politically correct, honestly, because I wouldn't word it that way. Most people would say, yeah, well, uh, you can, of course, consume alcohol and be just fine. And (laughs) it's funny because some even link those observational... uh, I'm sure you've seen it, the observational research that shows that... uh, one drink a day kind of protects you from cardiovascular disease versus someone that doesn't drink. So I even brought up this question to someone that, are you seriously suggesting that if I'm not drinking, I am um, doing a detriment for my cardiovascular health (laughs) compared to someone who drinks? And I guess the second part of this question, we can tackle it one at a time or both of them. I'm not really sure where the um, recreational consumption and where the addiction starts? I
1: think it, it really depends. If you're going off of kind of government standards, I think they list it off for men. It's like three to four drinks a day. I think if you do that, pretty much you're kind of abusing at that point. But I would imagine, I have no idea. I would, I would assume like there's a spectrum on that. Like I'm sure some people can do that and they're totally fine. And other people, if they do that, they're kind of just going to be wrecked. I mean, even if you look through the genetics for that, you have certain populations that just can't even process alcohol. So they have one drink and they're just totally tanked. So I'm sure with them, it's like, yeah, they're doing four drinks a day. They're going to be in a bad time pretty soon, health wise. But for some people, like, I'm sure that'd be okay. I mean, I would say the biggest thing for me, if, and I wouldn't judge anybody for what they're doing, of course, but when it starts to be a detriment to other things, I think, like, then it starts to be an issue. So once it starts to get in the way of, like, things you want to achieve, or you're putting it in front of relationships and stuff like that, or it's just being dysfunctional in your life, but you just can't say no to it, then I would say you're probably, probably then it becomes a problem.
0: Yeah. That's, that's certainly fair. And although it just, for me, it would seem that being constantly, because if you drink three, three, four bears, three four beers a day and you don't drink them all at once if you distribute it (laughs) kind of throughout the day like your protein uh, feedings Mm -hmm. then you're just kind of constantly at some sort of an elevated blood alcohol level and i would think that that would impair your mental function if nothing else
1: yeah i mean you'd think so (laughs) i mean it wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily you know somebody comes from me with a job and that's kind of what they're Lifestyles like, it'd be like, mm, I don't know if I'm going to trust you with stuff. So, I mean, that could be an issue, but I mean, it's, it, it all depends on the person, I guess. So it's all individual. That's kind of a thing. I had people asking, like when I first kind of came out with the whole, Hey, I'm, I'm quitting drinking type of thing. And then like, well, can I still, you know, have alcohol and, you know, have fitness and stuff. And it's like anybody can like, if you don't have a problem with it, there's no reason people can't have you know, like what you were saying, like that one drink a day and stuff. I would never judge anybody based on that because everybody's different. And certain people can handle that fine. I mean, I wouldn't be able to because I would have that one drink and then I'd be like, this is awesome. <laughs> like, why shouldn't I have 10? <laughs> like I just go off the rails. But, you know, anybody, it, it's all individual. It all kind of breaks down that way for me, at least.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's great you mentioned, the. Uh, well, I'm just going to have one thing because... That's a great segue into the whole um, food addiction or sh- sugar addiction thing, and the classic now classical IFM advice, or well, just have half a cookie or half an Oreo or something. And I've seen that strategy backfire so miserably so many times, for myself included.
1: Yeah, and that's such a weird thing. And it, it with the, if it it's your macros, people, the people who are like hardcore into that, who really just push it to everybody. It's almost like if you tell somebody like, yeah, if this is a trigger for you, don't have it. And then they're like, no, but you have to have it. Like you can't avoid anything ever. It's like if it's a detriment, then yes, you can. (laughs) It's like if somebody's an alcoholic and they're like, you know what, man, this whole not drinking things really hard, especially like I wanted one. So, you know, I take like a shot every day and man, it really triggers me just to want more. And then you kind of go like, well, then just don't have the shot every day. Like if that's making it harder for you, then just don't do it. And same thing with like food. Like I have a big thing and I brought this up in videos before, like with chips. Like if I have a few chips, man, I'm eating the whole bag and I will mentally justify why I can do that in seconds. So for me, it's like it's easier just not to have that than it is to try to have three or four. So if some people can do that and they can be like, you know, I'm going to have half a slice of pizza and I'm going to fit it in my macros. Fantastic! You are, you're greater than I, but there's no way like I would be able to do that because for some people, they're going to have that one half slice. And then when it's, it's just going to be what's called preoccupation. They're going to start mentally being like, well, okay, I can have another one and then I'll do 20 minutes more cardio tomorrow. And, and then they'll have that next one. Then it's like, you know, if I just eat perfectly the rest of the week and I'll just cut out some carbs later on, I can have two slices. And then it's, it just it could be a thing of like a, a snowball effect of now they're making like, you know what? I'm going to eat no food for the rest of the week and then I'm going to eat the whole pizza. And it's like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Pretty much like they're just going off the diet at that point and they're just kind of ruining it for the week for that deficit. So it's just easier just not to have it.
0: Definitely. And I've made similar decisions, calculations before that well tomorrow I'm just going to fast or some shit like that and that's how disordered eating starts.
1: So that's like when you brought up like sugar addiction and stuff like that. It's I don't know if you want to would go into that at all as far as like what I think about it.
0: Yeah, sure, sure, cuz from someone who has faced actually addictive substance abuse, I would be interested to hear if you think that's a fair comparison.
1: Well, kind of when you sent me those topics I was reading an article I think by Krieger is it James? Is that his name? James Krieger, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I was reading his article, like after you sent me topics and stuff, and I was kind of, I wanted kind of the fitness consensus on it in terms of like what people thought. And kind of what it was going off of is like it just doesn't exist. And, you know, when you give rats like ad of intake of sugar, like they eat less. And then I'm like, okay, like there's two areas you can kind of go down with that. You can either go down the, the physiological aspect and how it really affects somebody, like in terms of is it really addictive? And then you can also go down the aspect of what's the psychological effects? And is it psychologically addictive? And is it just a trigger for somebody? And if you're just going the physiological, I think there can be a case made that it can certain foods can be addictive to people, especially when if you look at some of the studies, I mean, it's not even really getting the substance it's literally the preoccupation and the anticipation of getting something can heighten the dopamine aspect. I think like Robert Sapolsky's brought that up before. Like if you give, like with gambling, like there's nothing inherently addictive about gambling. What's addictive is the preoccupation, the thinking about it, the the risk reward of am I going to win, am I going to lose, that spikes dopamine completely. Like even when I was in rehab, there's a whole wing at the rehab that I went to all it was was gambling. They had no issues with drugs, alcohol. I mean, people might have, but they are completely addicted to putting money on a table or calling a bookie about a game. And that is perfectly acceptable as being addictive. So so, can certain foods be to certain people? I I think you can have some of those addictive aspects for sure. And that kind of goes to the physiological. I'm sure with some people, if they're trying to diet and then they have you know, like, man, I shouldn't have these things. Like, should I? They're walking down the, the the aisles of their grocery store and they're like, man, I don't know if I should get these or not. And should I? I don't know. And it gets to be preoccupation. And then it's like, you know, they get the risk reward from that. And it's not even maybe about eating it at that point. You get that whole spike in dopamine of just the idea of I'm going to sneak over. I'm going to get those cookies. I'm going to throw them in. So at that point, I would say maybe. But the psychological aspect which is going to be different is people condition themselves to man. I'm bummed out today. What makes me feel better every day? I'm going to go to Burger King and get my favorite thing. So then it's not even maybe the, the physiological aspect. It's just, they've trained themselves that this is what I'm going to do in these certain situations. And to break that's really hard. That's one of the biggest things like for me with drinking and stuff too. It's like, um, at the early onset, Okay, the whole addictive thing for the alcohol is gone like it's out of my body. You're fine. You don't have those cravings or the addictions physiologically, but it's daily working on the psychological aspects of I'm going to change what I do in my life and I'm going to restructure things and then work on, you know, like cognitive behavioral therapy, like working on my thinking patterns to get my mind out of Oh, I've had a rough day. What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to go drink. Well, no. What are you going to do now when you've had a rough day when you don't have that option? So that's kind of where it goes back and forth with me. And I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, too, with dieting because they're really like, no, there's no addiction to food. There's no sugar addiction. But when you really talk to people and you really work with people in terms of changing their lives, you really do get a lot of the same things that people use for addiction treatment are used for dieting as well because it's all behavioral lifestyle change. So even if you're looking at it with dieting and you look at the success rates, it's a five to 10% success rate for dieting. If you look at people going through rehab and quitting drinking or drugs, it's five to 10% success rate. Like so, I mean, if people want to nitpick like, oh no, it's not really addictive technically, whatever, but in the end you're gonna use the same techniques anyway as if it was. So I mean you kinda of break it down like that. It's like whatever, if somebody just wants to sound smart, they're gonna be, no, it's not actually addictive. Um it's not actually a real thing. Okay, fine. But in the real world, it is. <laughs> so You brought up
0: so well I actually took some notes here because you brought up so many good points. Um with regards to the last bone that you mentioned, well, in real life, it, the interventions are going to be the same. Um, I'm pretty sure Alex Viada wrote something about this on Facebook. Have you seen this? some of his posts around uh, that whole Halo Top ice cream thing? Certain um, comments or labels they wrote on the um, packaging, they wrote things like, um, well, who needs portion sizes, you're going to eat the whole tub at once anyway, and... Um, A bunch of similar um, messages which kind of Alex pointed out that uh, hinted or kind of suggested people into going into mindless eating and not even paying attention to portion control or uh, fullness or something like that. Just down yourself in the ice cream and just have a whole tub at once whether you want it or not. Okay, so...
1: As far as that being like a negative thing or like a triggering type of thing?
0: Alex pointed out that, um, well, people who are kind of are having bad relationship with food, um, those would be the opposite of what strategies someone would might implement with those people. Like you would want them to pay attention to portion sizes and how they feel and um, eat mindfully and stop when they are full. And instead, these um, particular ice cream kind of... Um, suggested people to do the opposite
1: yeah i mean that can be bad for sure the, i don't know if i really would get after the company about that because i mean you can kind of look the same thing too with like alcohol and stuff like that and alcohol ads like look how great it is go out and drink and it's wonderful and everything it's like so it, they're making it look great it's like but certain people it's not and that can be really triggering in terms of man like maybe Being out like for me, like maybe drinking is a great thing. Look how much fun those people are having in those Bud Light commercials. So it's like then it can be that. But I mean, I think the biggest thing with something like that is sure that can be triggering for certain people. But it kind of breaks down to the individual to be like, all right, this is triggering for me. So I'm either not going to have this or how do I work on myself to not have that be a trigger? Because triggers are going to be everywhere. You're not ever going to get away from that. I mean, pretty much I pay for everything like Hulu, YouTube, and stuff. And I was actually at, I believe, my parents' house watching TV. And every single commercial that comes up is like you have one for alcohol, one for a fast food place, or two or three. So it's like everybody every day watching just regular ads on TV, you are getting bombarded with drinking and food constantly or pharmaceutical drugs in the US. I mean, those are on every single commercial too or every commercial break. So you constantly have these things going at you all the time. And so the thing, instead of looking at it like, how dare you guys do this? You have to, I think for me, and again, this is just for me and how I would look at it. You have to look at it more like intrinsically and be like, okay, these things are going to be out there How am I going to deal with them? And that's kind of where it breaks down more for me. I mean, I can, I love Alex's posts. I I haven't seen that one, but I remember him bringing up ones about, I think, um, uh, like eating disorders or addiction and stuff like that. And they hit home for me 100%. I love his writings. I think he's great. But I would maybe disagree with that a little bit about going toward the company. I think it'd be more, I wouldn't say wise, but more of a better thing if somebody is being... Affected by what somebody writes on an ice cream tub, maybe work on yourself a little bit more and work through that. So, like, so maybe that's a little bit different.
0: Yeah, I definitely wouldn't want you to make um, opinions about Alex's post based on what I remember off of it. So, about the sugar thing itself, so I have uh, mainly two big issues with those that say that sugar is addictive. One is that they reference usually fmri studies or something like that well when you eat sugar this brain region lights up and well that lights up due to all kinds of stimuli like hugging a kid or petting a dog or something like that so well done it just seems like a superficial thing to me and two it's the foods itself because i wouldn't debate at all that food can be a trigger and can be addictive. Like, there are those um, TV shows, My 400 Pound Life, something like that. It's called. It's there in the US, and those people like are just consuming crazy amounts of food, like nine, ten thousand calories a day. Like, that's just stupendous. But that's not sugar, or even the foods that are brought up. Well, sugar is addictive. Look how much cake people eat, and it's like, well, cake is like forty percent fat. 50% sugar you know like yeah even the well no one eats um straight up sugar is a bit of a well a bit of a weak argument but it does have a point that okay obviously I can't see your point but at the same time I uh, disagree with the original proponent so I'm, I'm not sure why sugar is itself is um kind of selected or
1: yeah um to kind of back up to your point, it's my 600-pound life because this is America, sir, and we don't do 400 here.
0: Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
1: like, but, yeah, I mean, I can see your point for sure. And I would – if I, I'm going to back up on mine, I don't necessarily mean sugar itself is addictive. I'm more talking about food in general. And so what I'm talking like triggering foods, like for me when I was saying it's chips, it's that the saltiness, the, the texture. That is for me what does it. And for other people, it's probably other things. So, yeah, I think like food in general, although I I have never met anybody who's addicted to like chicken breast by any means. It's normally fat or sugars. So, yeah, you have that. And then you also have certain combinations of foods that can contribute to that as well. So you have like there's a really good video. If you ever watch like those eating challenge TV shows where like one guy is eating just a massive milkshake. And he literally is getting almost to the bottom, and he's like, I can't go on. This is horrible. And so what he eats with it, he orders really salty uh, French fries, and then he starts eating a few of those. And what that does is now you got rid of palate fatigue, which I made a post about it yesterday because I was looking up stuff again, and I remember that video for the show now. And you can get over palate fatigue by just the combinations of foods, and then you eat some of those saltiness because it gets rid of that sweet sensation, And now you can go back to eating sweets again. And so that too, I think, can be triggering when you put the combinations together. So I think like what you were saying, like, yeah, I mean, people eat like cake and it's like mostly fat. It's like, yeah. And it's also the combination of what they're eating with it too. And it's the, I think hyper palatability, I think is what they would normally put it as. So, I mean, I think it's definitely stuff like that. And that's, I mean, for some of those people, that's definitely how they're eating that many calories in a day. Is there a combination of all these foods and stuff?
0: Yeah, um, sensory-specific satiety is definitely interesting. And uh, there's a book, I'm not sure what it's called, but I know it's about this specifically, the food industry and how they engineer food. And I have my degree in food science, and I had a class, um, kind of sensory analysis, and we had to as far as we had to, fill for a couple of food items and It's kind of how food manufacturers um, establish whether a consumer is going to like a food or not. And there were like 50 emotions that you had to uh, rate on a scale of 1 to 5. Kind of like on a scale of 1 to 5, would you say this food made you angry, sad, bitter? And there were like 50 emotions. Jeez. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously they look for the happy feelings because no one likes a food that makes them sad (laughs) or angry but uh, if a food makes you joyful or uh, relaxed or something like that well that's um and kind of that's how they do it i would imagine like i haven't worked on this specifically but i would imagine that they kind of tinker around with certain, um, like you said, certain structural properties or sugar and or fat or salt content and they kind of just tweak it a bit until they find the maximum amount of uh, hedonic um, reward response and test it on people and the more people like them, well, you have a winner. (laughs) In that sense, yeah, that's kind of like the textbook definition of an addictive food. Like that's how they
1: design it so yeah and i mean i would think too at least for the manufacturers of these like i wouldn't think they would be mad if their food was addictive (laughs) like if it's like this is so good everyone wants to eat it all the time i don't think any company is going to be like god man that sucks (laughs) like i think they'd be pretty happy that people have a craving for their stuff and i think that's probably their goal yeah
0: exactly that's the goal that's the entire point of it um and uh like you mentioned, the environment at the ads, yeah, that's definitely an issue. And uh, Yoni Friedhoff is very vocal about this. If you're familiar with him,
1: um, I've probably heard of him before. I'm sure sounds familiar.
0: Yeah, he works in some sort of a public um, public health office, kind of something like that. And he has had a lot of uh, blog posts and videos about uh, why you can't just have one and you can't just constantly throughout the day like you said you're bombarded with 60 different things and you can't just keep saying no 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 because after a while you just get tired and you're like fuck it I'm tired of this I'm just going to eat that (laughs) and
1: yeah like even like when I go and like pick up my kid from or my kids from daycare like I have to go from one side of town and I'm it's like 22,000 people it's not a huge city I'm in by any means and I have to drive down the main first street main drag you'll go past 10 fast food places in a mile and a half. And each one has boards out, what's on sale, massive signs. It's like, even beyond the ads, you just go through life. And it's like, if I drive down the street, I'm going to be bombarded with, you should come here and eat our stuff. It's on sale and it's delicious. And it is. (laughs) So you have to really like, you're constantly dealing with that input of, you know, overeat and get this food and it's great. And it's wonderful. So you really need to that's kinda of why I bring up like you really need to work intrinsically is be for that reason. Like is you're never going to get away from just being bombarded with this stuff.
0: Yeah, and um you said this yourself that kind of the behaviors you engage in, if you repeat that thing, it just reinforces itself. I don't know, do you follow Jordan Peterson at all or have you seen any of his videos or something like that?
1: Um I watched some of his stuff probably two or three years ago, and I since then like this is like back when he first was bringing up pronouns, and he was on like the Gavin McInnes show years ago, and this was before he even got famous. And since he really like kind of blew up and exploded and stuff, I haven't watched a lot of his stuff.
0: I love his stuff. I absolutely love. I honestly I don't care all that much about the political stuff, but his overall life life lessons I think those are great and one of his saying is stop making yourself weak and essentially what he means by that is stop doing things that you know are bad for you and you know are harming your long-term well-being because what he says is that by doing that you are actively reinforcing that side of you and the next time you are facing a decision like that you are that much more inclined to do that action again or take that decision and it repeats itself and that's kind of like in a way i've seen some the bodybuilders bring up for example joe bennett um the hypertrophic coach i asked him about this on instagram why he he doesn't do cheat meals for example during a prep and he said that he know like he's not stupid he knows he could do it he knows he could factor it into his macros or something like that but then he said mentally then what's stopping you to have another one, another one? Because mentally you can go back and say, well, I did it before, I did it previously, so I cheated already, so what's stopping me to cheat again and again and again, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and actually when you say that, especially the thing from Jordan Peterson and also what uh, Joe Bennett, was that his name? Yeah, Joe Bennett. What he was saying too, even when you look at that too on like just going to the gym, you can have that same thing, like... I know for me and I brought it before and there's a really good quote from from Ben Affleck for getting ready for Batman when he's like, you know, the biggest thing for getting in shape for the role is you just have to go to the gym and do it like you just have to go there. And I have the same thing. And like what I've told people and clients and stuff before is you might not want to go, but this the act of going reinforces that you're going to go later. Because you're either feeding into one side of your head or the other. If you're going like, man, I don't want to go today. So, you know, I have other stuff going on. And it's just one day. It's one day. It doesn't matter. One workout out of, if I'm working out every day, one out of 365 days a year. I don't go to the gym, whatever. But as soon as you do that, you're going to have another day that comes up. And you're going to be like, I mean, I skipped once before and I didn't see any negative outcomes. I'm still fine. And I, I don't have to go today. I got other stuff going on. And then it comes to a third day or a fourth day in that year. And then all of a sudden you've missed weeks on end over the course of, you know, the year off and on. And you just constantly reinforce that, you know, it's just one day. And the same thing, like if you keep going, you reinforce like, you know, I might not want to, but, you know, I felt good afterwards and I can go and do it. And you just reinforce that side. So you're either reinforcing one or the other. And that's the same thing with the addictive aspect working out. It's just, you need to reinforce that strong side, I guess. So yeah, that quote is awesome. Love that.
0: Yeah. um, I actually had clients who told me that, um, well, I live in Romania, so um, affording a personal trainer isn't the cheapest thing ever. And I had a girl who told me that, Well, I'm afraid that once I stop working with you, there will be those days when I come out from work and I'm tired and Right now I'm coming to the gym because I know I have to be here at six p.m. or whatever because we have a training scheduled. But once you're not there, then what's stopping me to <laughs> to just lay in the bed and watch TV or something? And I told her, What's stopping you? <laughs> Your discipline and the fact that you you've been here previously and you know that you've been tired previously and you came anyway, and doesn't matter. It's like I keep." telling people all the time when they ask me well how do you come to the gym every day or whatever what do i think <laughs> i go to the gym because it's in my ca- it's in my schedule and i know I have to go and that's it because especially at the beginning when you're kind of new to all of this and you're not really sure that you know what you're doing eh, it's just kind of meh but especially then it's very important to go no matter what like you said because then you reinforce that behavior and uh, just kind of ingrain it and once you are used to it and once you have a bit of the iron bug (laughs) and you are feeling competent and you're getting strong and all that then it's easy but in the beginning yeah it's definitely much more difficult
1: yeah that's like i go off quotes all the time and that's like kevin smith he made that movie clerks and stuff and mall rats so kind of Indeed, director, and he had like a good quote, like when he first wanted to go into filmmaking, and he's like, "Yeah, I want to be a filmmaker." And his sister's like, "We'll just be a filmmaker then. Just go do it." Same thing with fitness, like what you were saying, like you know, you first start with fitness, you go to the gym, you're not really sure what to do. Well, you're going, you're you're getting into it already. So maybe you don't know every aspect of muscle physiology or exactly how to lose weight, but the fact that you're there is a huge step. Just going into the gym is a massive step which a lot of people don't even do like that's 80 percent of getting in shape is just making the effort to go and do it so just the idea of going is very important i would say
0: so i think it would be now time to transition to what you did essentially to lose those 50 pounds you've mentioned um, so what made you start the whole fat loss is, is it, was it just simply becoming frustrated with not getting results or kind of wasting time, essentially?
1: Yeah, wasting time for sure. And I was always thinking in my head, again, because when you're drinking and when you're an alcoholic, you are delusional. Like, it is disordered thinking. And so you're drinking and you're like, yeah, but I still go to the gym three times a week. I'm sure I still look great. And what I was telling you earlier, like, and then I actually looked in the mirror once and I'm like okay yeah I do not look great <laughs> like this is not balancing well this is going very bad so at that point it's like you reevaluate everything and that's really for me kind of what triggered it was just like you know I I like to be in fitness and I like all this stuff but at the same time it's like I'm not succeeding with it at all and so I really need to kind of up my, my game up what I'm doing a little bit to really get in the shape that I really want to be in because even at that point too Like if anybody has like a water softener and you know how heavy one of those, you know, 50 pound salt bags is, imagine having that on your body all the time. Like it just sucks. (laughs) And like joint pain, like my knees hurt a little bit and that's gone now. But it's the same thing of like doing cardio and stuff at first was really hard and now that's much easier. So it's just little things like that are just more enjoyable now. And That's kind of a a side note from that, but that's kind of what I was looking at. And like, yeah, that's a big reason for me that I really want to get in shape now. Looking back in last December is for that reason.
0: I was actually, I re-watched slash listened to the second interview near the grass and did with Joe Rogan. And uh, he mentioned there a guy, that he was watching some sort of a fat loss show. And the guy there said that whenever he lost, he was trying to lose a hundred pounds or something like that. And whenever he lost 15 pounds, he put up a bowling ball on on the wall. And he said, that's what I'm not carrying with me anymore. (laughs) And it's it's impactful to see it visually. Because like you said, 50 pounds, that's a whole lot of weight. But (laughs) if you keep carrying it around, you don't realize it.
1: Yeah, that's an awesome representation too. (laughs) Like the bowling ball thing, that's great. So
0: um, one of the highlights of your uh, fat loss journey was... uh, you mentioning that you follow a super high protein intake, something like 3 up to 4 grams per kilo, something like that?
1: Um, I'm not really sure per kilo or per, well, per pound, I guess I could figure out quick, but like 350 grams a day I would say on average, like for the weight loss aspect is kind of what I was aiming for.
0: And you weighed what, 250 initially, 240?
1: When I first started losing weight, I was about 240 and then got down... I'm about 195 now. I think the lowest I got was about 190 to 189, I think, which was pr- the lowest for sure.
0: Yeah, so around 1.5 grams per pound, which would be 2.2 2 times 1.5, 3.3 3 grams per kilo. That's um, a fair degree higher than most people would do. What was the reasoning behind this and what was the effects you observed?
1: I would say for me, um, I do really well on fairly low carb intake. I've never been one who's like, man, I feel so much better eating a bunch of carbs. I've never really needed that. Um, So for me, like protein, I can eat that all the time. Like, I love that. I love chicken, steak, all that kind of stuff. Cottage cheese, <laughs> which I see your posts, that you post about cottage cheese, sir. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're copying me. <laughs> I feel I feel a little copied a little bit with that. <laughs> but yeah, cottage cheese for sure. I mean, I could eat a tub of that every single day, and that's like 80 grams of protein. And you can mix whatever you want with it. It's great. Um, so that for sure, and then like a pound and a half of chicken... You know, a couple shakes a day, maybe like a protein bar or something here and there. But that really works well for me because I don't need the carbohydrates. I feel fine on a lower carb intake. Fat intake for me is fine because you're eating plenty of meats and stuff. But for satiety, if you eat that much protein, I can almost guarantee you're probably not going to be hungry if you eat a pound and a half of chicken right before you go to bed. And that was a big thing for me is like waking up at, you know, one or two in the morning and just starving. But if I do something like that... Um, I'm pretty good through the entire night because a big aspect for me, too, is when you wake up at one or two in the morning, you're probably not going to do something that is a very healthy food choice because, <laughs> I mean, you're tired. You don't want to do anything. So you're probably going to make some higher calorie intake uh, priority at that point. So that helped really well just for satiety and overall and muscle retention seemed to work really nice for that, too. And I, I wouldn't say. That everybody should do that either I think for some people like do a higher carbohydrate intake do a moderate protein like the one gram per pound of is the obvious rule of thumb for some people so you can go lower for sure I don't think there'll be a detriment to that but with dieting it's all what works for you as long as you're in that deficit you're getting enough protein you're getting enough vitamins minerals essential fats Carb intake for me is variable like, if some people do really well on low carbs, fine. If they do, like, great on higher carbs and they feel better with that, fine. I mean, you can do whatever you want with that type of thing, which is always kind of a weird debate when people go into, like, oh, keto is horrible or everyone should do high carb intake. It's like, really, you should do whatever works best for you and whatever you like. There's some solid rules that we have, like I was saying with protein, vitamins, minerals, so on and so forth. But in the end, it's whatever works for you to get in that deficit, man. and. You know, if you do something weird like I do with a high protein, but you're still in that deficit, all fair game at that point.
0: The satiety thing is interesting because a couple of years ago, even recently, I would have been all over the volume and thing. But since then, um, many people have pointed out, and I experienced this myself personally, that even though you can have your stomach stretched out to the maximum, you can still feel hungry inside which kind of seems like a contradiction but if you've experienced it it's not so um protein is very interesting i don't know if you've seen the recent trend on carnivores i've listened to the sean baker interview with joe rogan apparently he um, inspired borge fageli to try it out the all meat diet essentially and that's basically only protein and fat and Borges said that he felt super satiated. Like it was very easy for him to maintain very lean physique and his energy levels were fine. And I, like, I'm not going to go that extreme, but there's some certainly something in there. And I'm not sure if it's just the meat or the protein plus all the nutrients you would get from
1: or the meat. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the studies on, what, God, what do they call it? Um, it, it protein... Protein-specific satiety. Uh, yeah, pro- yeah, probably what you just said. <laughs> I'm sure that's right. Yeah, but even like controlled settings, even when people have no idea how much protein they're intaking, if they mask the protein intake and they have them eat more, people, if even if it's ad libitum contained, of course, intake of calories, people eat less calories if they intake the more protein, even if they don't know it. So, I mean, there is a thing there. It's not huge. I think it was like five... less calories but if it's not controlling anything and you can eat as much as you want that's a big thing it's big to eat that much percentage less calories when you're not even trying to hold back so there is a thing there like with that protein intake and just knocking out satiety seems to work pretty nice
0: i did my thesis on high protein diets and health and one of the aspects i touched on was satiety and i remember reading about that and there were some speculations that maybe there is some sort of a. it wasn't really well um, documented well um, supported but it was one of these um, hypotheses that maybe there is some sort of a threshold that you have to pass with your um, protein intake meaning if even if you eat a large amount of food if you don't have enough protein in that we won't feel satiated enough
1: well i know that's like with me for sure and again you kind of get to that individual basis type of thing i mean if i eat carbs i could eat those all day and i'm never going to feel that full but with even like a whey shake or something like that or the, the cottage cheese i can eat that and i can be fine for hours even past you know the overall digestion time and stuff it's just there's something about that that you know you just it, for me it's just easy for being satiated and I don't really even think about food later on
0: and one of the reasons I like cottage cheese is because I don't like to take a lot of time to make food and that that you can just take it out from the fridge open it up and eat it and (laughs) like you said 80 grams of protein in there and
1: that is a really good point because that's one thing that i love with cottage cheese because the type that i buy i buy one tub and i just eat one tub a day and i had people ask like well why why that and it's for the same reason it's like i don't want to make anything i want to grab one of these i'll have one a day i have it in the fridge and I don't have to measure anything. I can eat like, I'm going to eat maybe half right now, I'll we'll eat half later. And it's just, it's convenient. That's a big thing with dieting as well, is convenience.
0: Carbs, I like them. I, I love them. But um, fats are the only macronutrient that I'm not particularly like. Of course, I like myself some sort of um, food that has fat in it for texture or something like that, for creaminess. But... Um, My preferred style of dieting is when gaining something like higher carb, moderate protein, and when losing definitely high protein, moderate high-ish carb, whatever I can get away with, and low fat. Like if if I eat thirty grams of fat a day, I'm 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 fine. That's
1: kind of how I track that too. Like as long as you hit the minimum for fat, I don't really worry about it that much. And so, especially when you're eating meats and stuff, I mean, you're, you're you have most of it covered already. So you're probably fine. It's not really a big concern for me, at least. So I'm kind of the same way with that, too.
0: I like to include a couple of whole eggs, even on the fat loss, because those are super nutrient dense. But um other than that, I, I don't even put olive oil. And that would be the healthier ones. Something like canola oil. Definitely not.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and even with that, like that's as far as like even supplements and stuff like that, too. Like I'll supplement like some omega-3s. And stuff like that, just to make sure you get some of the essential fatty acids too. But the rest, yeah, kind of throw it up in the air at that point. So I do it whole eggs too. I've always done a couple of those, especially when it's like eating chicken breast or something like that at night. And they're so low in terms of fat content now. It's like, you know, throw a couple of those on just so you get some fats with that too. But that'd really be about it. One other thing you could
0: probably include if you like it is liver just from the nutritional point of view they are super super
1: nutrient rich do you I don't know how much like as far as supplement history and stuff that used to be so huge like liver tablets I don't know if you remember those at all but that used to be the thing like you, they were huge I think like Universal is a company I I'm, I'm think they might even still make them but yeah for that reason that they had so many nutrients they had protein stuff like that and they were just loaded and so people used to pop those like ten at a time back in the day as they call it
0: I just eat liver straight up. I like it i either pan fry it uh, in a bit of oil or cook it just on a stove with some onions and stuff. <laughs> it turns out super super delicious nice. I'm gonna try that one of the other um I don't know if one if I wanna call it uh, characteristics um or one of the other key approaches I've seen you take is um, training in a lower volume higher intensity manner was there someone who has particularly influenced you into this style of training or was it something that you came across uh, intuitively or through trial and error
1: I would say the number one guy and it will when you're talking about like high intensity training and stuff or low volume I mean the two guys that you go to right off the bat are Mike Mentor and Dorian Yates I mean those are the two guys for sure I mean you can have like Casey Vieter and stuff like that in there too um, but I mean those two guys for sure impacted it the most and now I think recently now um, You can look at like DC training uh, I think Dante Trudell. I think he's the guy that came up with that But I mean you can look at that too And I mean it is fairly low volume higher frequency normally with something like that Which is what I do mostly is higher frequency, but lower volume but I think yeah, I mean It seems to work fine in Like as far as time goes And a big thing with that too, I think, is just the mentality that kind of goes into that. And that really, it it fits me and what I like to do in the gym.
0: Because one of the characteristics of um, low volume training is beating your (laughs) logbook. And that's certainly valuable instead of just going into the gym and just doing mindless workouts without any progression in mind
1: that is really like one of the biggest things i would say i am a total nerd and so i save magazines like a hoarder and i have a magazine from like 10 years ago or more that had a dorian yates article in it which i loved and I, i've read a few times and all it is is just like hey you should keep a log book <laughs> And you should write down what you're doing. You should, every time you go to the gym, you should try to beat what you did the time before. That should be your goal. And that's the thing too with like going to failure and stuff like that is you go in and you're just pushing it as hard as you can. Like you need to do as good as you can. You have a logbook here. You know exactly what you need to hit or go above and you just go from there. So yeah, that's every iteration of high intensity training that I've seen. It's always, that is the big thing. It's beating your logbook. You go in and you try to do better than what you did before.
0: Yeah, I I definitely track my workouts. But I use a phone application. But um, I do use, um, for some of my clients, I, I use the old um, logbook. And I write with my especially beautiful handwriting <laughs> the workouts we do together. And um, there is some distinct value of writing it yourself instead of just copying the workout.
1: Yeah, I had a teacher probably in... Sixth grade, seventh grade. <clears throat> and I don't remember much of any of the lessons that he taught, but he had a really big point is, and I remember this clear as day if you don't write it down, it didn't happen. And that was his thing about homework because I would never do homework and I wouldn't write down my assignments. And so he would bring that up like, if you, if you don't write it down, it didn't happen. Like, you're not going to remember what you did. And that st- stuck with me since that time is the same thing with working out. Like, you see people in the gym all the time and you see them January and then you see them the next December, they're doing exactly the same thing. Nothing has changed. It's the same weights they're doing, It's the same routine. And what else hasn't changed? They look exactly the same as they did a year ago because they don't track anything. They don't try to beat what they were doing before. And it's great like, hey, you're in the gym, you're working out wonderful. But if somebody has a goal of I want to get bigger, well, you're going to have to do more than what you were doing a year ago. So that just that's how it rolls. And if you don't write it down and you don't know you're not tracking, I'm sure for some people they could be like, no, I'm progressing fine. But are you? How do you know? Like you don't write anything down. You don't know if you're progressing at all. You're not taking even measurements to even know if you're progressing. So yeah, that's the big thing for me. Write everything down.
0: I played this trick with clients and they will tell me, well, I don't have to log it because I remember. I'm like, okay, if you say so, if you have an elephant memory sure and then the next work i'll ask them um last time we did this exercise how much weight did we use how many reps did you do and they will be like um well like we kind of used this much and i i kind of did that many but i'm not sure that yeah exactly that was my point <laughs> And that kind of settles settles the argument, and <laughs> they will start using uh, some sort of a uh, tracking um,
1: tool. Well, that's even a really good thing for somebody just starting as well. Like when you're in the gym, because you know the first few weeks you might not see anything in terms of physical changes. But when, you, like, you have clients, and like I do, like the higher intensity stuff with clients as well, and so I'm writing everything down. And so when we're doing an exercise, and you're like, okay, let's, like, I track everything myself, so I have it you know clipboard because I'm a Luddite I don't use I don't use apps like you technical people (laughs) I just write everything down still but when they're doing like a weight or something in an exercise and they got maybe 10 reps last week and now they're back again we're trying it and they got 12 and so it's like all right you got 12 write that down and it's a motivating factor for people especially when they just start off like wow I'm getting stronger I got stronger in a week Like, those are things that you can track and manage and be like, look, you're succeeding. You're getting better at this. And you have it written down right here, clear as day, tracked, that here's how you're getting better before the physical changes even manifest. So I think that, for people starting out, I think that can be a big motivational factor.
0: Do you ever experience that people kind of run themselves into the ground with this um, low-volume approach? Like, if you're so fixated on uh, trying to beat your previous performance that you let's say especially if you take some sort of a periodized approach and you have uh, have easier weeks and day load weeks and then some sort of uh, intensification throughout the weeks um have you ever seen maybe even with yourself or with clients that they just start things too heavy and by week two they just kind of stuck so they keep hitting uh, failure after failure and not really
1: accomplishing much. The biggest thing I think when it comes to that and people kind of running themselves on the ground is when your whole goal is you want to beat what you did previously, you have the tendency to do anything in your power to make that happen. And what the biggest thing that happens with that then is yeah. let's say you're doing curls one week and it's just perfect form, perfectly controlled. And then you look at yourself five weeks later and you're lifting more weight for sure but your form sucks because the only way that you were able to increase the weight that you were doing is to just deteriorate your form to the point that you're just swinging weights in the air. And what happens then is you're not really making progress. What you're doing is you're just increasing your injury risk because you're, and that's where I think people kind of run themselves into the ground with high intensity training is they don't know when to reevaluate their form. And that's the biggest thing I've always pushed with like the stuff that I do is form revaluation. like You can't just progress and wait every week without really doing kind of an audit on how you're doing the exercises. Like They should be consistent from week to week. So that's kind of the biggest area I've seen with anybody kind of running themselves into the ground is they just start using really bad form and then they just get injured or pull something and then it's like, yeah, that's going to set you back for sure.
0: Execution is the absolute foundation of hypertrophy training and as much people... Um, in the evidence-based community like to shit on Ben Pakulski. There is really no one <laughs> better out there when it comes to execution and uh, actually contracting muscles instead of just um, shifting weights, as my uh, British friends like to say, <laughs> shifting weights up and down.
1: Yeah, it, and that's kind of a big thing kind of along that lines. I think, if people are doing the higher-intensity stuff too that you really need to get over is... Let's say you're using 40 pounds one week. Like you need to be okay with then being like, you know what? I'm not doing this effectively. I need to go back down to 25 pounds. Like you, you need to be conscious enough to know like you're lowering the weight. Sure. But you're hitting the muscle more effectively. Like that has to be a thing. That's more of like an ego thing. I think with people too, like you talk to some people like, you know, you should maybe lower that a little bit. It's like, oh, I'm not doing that. Like, I've worked up to this weight. It's like, okay, well, you can work yourself up to the hospital later on when you get a muscle tear. Like, that's just what's going to happen. So, people just have to kind of get over that aspect, too. But, yeah, I, people, yeah, they, a lot of people go after Ben for, like, some weird stuff, like drinking Diet Coke or something will kill your gains. But, yeah, I, I loved a lot of his stuff in terms of... Uh, proper execution and stuff. I think all that's fine.
0: I feel like we could talk about this topic for hours, but um, I want to be mindful of your time. So just one final question. What do you think about um, those response relationship between volume and muscle growth? Because I think by this point that is fairly strongly established that up to a certain point the more you do the more you get out of it basically and by the way <laughs> there was i don't know if you've seen it there was a debate on the beast muscle uh, radio podcast uh, between mike israel and some guy called um, victor black something like that and it was just inter- intellectually so frustrating like the guy kept interrupting mike and anyway but it was funny cause when he um, described low volume training, established it as something or between 10 or 12 and 15. So it was either between 10 to 15 or 12 to 15 sets per week. And Mike was like, and I was like too, but wait a minute. That's not how most uh, low volume proponents describe low volume training. Low volume training is usually either one set per workout or even uh, some would go as far as to say one set per week. So um, ten to twelve to fifteen says that's some that's definitely not uh, low
1: volume No. I, I mean especially I mean, if you get into some of the writings on some of these guys who are really in like the mike Menzer stuff if if you get toward the end of where he was going, he's like, you know, maybe do one set every three weeks It's like um, like you're getting a little off the rails there a little bit, but it's yeah, so I mean for me, I would think. Yeah, I mean, 12 to 15 isn't necessarily a low-volume routine when you're looking at like the classical high-intensity training routines. So you're kind of asking, like, how do I feel about the dose response for hypertrophy? How
0: low is it that you do? How many sets roughly, and how uh, does that fit within the whole um, dose-response relationship and the higher-volume training?
1: If I'm going in and hitting a muscle group, it would be kind of two really easy warm-up sets, one main set, and then a rest two rest pause. So that's like, if you're looking at DC later, it's pretty much what they do. So you have one main set to failure. You wait about 15, 20 seconds. You try to eke out, you know, maybe half the amount to failure again, wait about 20 more seconds. And then you try to do that again. So it's just, you know, two rest pause after one main set. And I do that for any given muscle group about twice a week. So it's fairly, I mean, if we're counting up like warm up sets and we're including that, and we're saying like, four reps and a rest pause is another set i mean i could maybe see where you're saying you're doing 12 sets for a body part but i mean i wouldn't really count those as a kind of applicable volume for hypertrophy especially the warm-ups because i mean come on
0: <laughs> just one exercise per muscle group that's it mm-hmm. wow yeah so that's <laughs> that's definitely because even if we we call that Three sets, let's say if you repeat that once again, that's like six sets tops. Like, yeah, that's 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 definitely low.
1: Can I swear on here? I wanna I wanna be respectful. The one thing that you get into, I was really into high intensity training. Well, I still am to a certain degree, but when you really get into like the the hit high intensity training Jedi's is what they're called, um, the people who are just adamant about everyone has to do it they tend to be kind of bitches about it. (laughs) and They tend, like what you were saying, like talking over people or saying, well, you don't know what you're doing or no, everyone should only do one set and no, one set's all you need. Any study that comes out where like, hey, more sets worked more effectively. Well, they didn't go to true failure. True failure wasn't achieved in this. They only needed the one. They just weren't trained correctly. And then they go into everyone who's a researcher You're all biased against high intensity training, even though every goddamn study from everywhere shows that more volume works more effectively in the general sense. So it's like they just get to be just bitchy about it and they cannot accept anything else. I've met a few people in the high intensity training community who are great and wonderful people. You can talk to them, have conversations. They're accepting of the idea like, yeah, some people might need more, but a lot of them. Like, who's it? Fred, I forget his last... That one guy who he blocked me for some reason. Fred um, Hahn? Yeah, The super guy. slow guy. <laughs> Which I can bring up his name because he blocked me. So I know he'll never see this. <laughs> and he blocked pretty much everybody um, who would ever say he was wrong about something. Um, but yeah, you get to be like that where you're like, no, everything from PhD muscle physiology researchers is biased. It's like, no, it's not. I will say though that certainly some people can do like my type of routine low volume and get pretty good results. Like I think some people do that because you can look at the general consensus on volume and show like yeah more tends to work more effectively and then you can look at the individual basis and you can be like well there are certain research studies on like angiotensin converting enzyme that show that some people just respond really well to low volume. And it seems to work really well for some reason for them. And whatever reason that is, like a Canine degradation and stuff like that, you can get all massively technical with it. But some people just respond more effectively to resistance training, and they get along fine with low volume. And some people need more of a stimulus to get the same effect. That seems perfectly reasonable to me. So, like, if I'm looking at it, I would be like, you know, for clients, for people in the real world wanting to get results, you know, maybe start lower. You don't need to start off doing, like, the old Arnold routines, which I don't know if you have ever read his book, but holy shit. Like, I'm not going and doing 40 sets a day of multiple exercises and then going again at night and doing stuff. Like, that's not going to happen. Like, for people in the real world who have, you know, families, jobs, I think it's perfectly reasonable have those people start off with a lower volume kind of a higher intensity routine and then if it gets to a point where like hey you know i'm not seeing as much results as i want well then you can up it a little bit i i think that's perfectly reasonable but a lot of people get really upset about that aspect and they're like you're not doing it the most effective way The you're not research based right now it's like yeah well i mean there's research showing that lower volume works it's just maybe you'll get more later on by doing more so
0: of course if you do even that one set to failure, like you said, um, um, with the two drop sets or something like that, rest sets, you will certainly get some growth out of that. Like, I think the main argument, it's it's never a um, thing of black and white or this works and that doesn't. It's about the magnitude and whether one uh, practice or one strategy <laughs> works better than the other. And like you said about starting people lower volumes there, like pretty much all I do at the gym is uh, try convincing people to do less shit, like focus more on execution and do actually quality work. Like for example, uh, right now, like my chest, I've gotten pretty good at the execution (laughs) and anything over eight sets. And that's usually six sets of presses and do some sort of a fly. And my chest like physically hurts. Like I feel that, holy cow if I'm gonna do another set I swear I'm going to tear something like it hurts so bad like, like it's almost screaming like okay that was enough <laughs> but yeah when I, I train clients who are usually either beginners or have a rather low experience we only do two working sets and even those are not the failure like we stop at technical failure, so it depends on how you want to define it, but this definitely not to eccentric failure or something, some shit like that. <laughs> yeah, well,
1: I, that's a really good point that you brought up, too. Like, when I say going to failure, I mean, you're going until, like, technical failure. I, yeah, that term, I've seen that around. I should have used it, but, yeah, it's you're not doing it right. That's the big thing, because as soon as you go into that realm of just swinging weights around, especially with somebody new, Like that's not a good precedent to start off on. That is pretty good for injury risk.
0: I think we are going to end it here because I swear we could talk about this for uh, another six hours and still have plenty to talk. So um, in case anyone is interested in um, checking you out um, on social media and uh, see your content, because I know you have a YouTube channel that you should be probably more active on, uh, where they can find you?
1: I think if you go on like Facebook, uh, High Intensity Fitness Consulting would be the page that I have. Trevor Johnson, of course. Um, if you type in like Trevor Johnson Bodybuilding, I think that should go to my YouTube channel if you put that in YouTube. If you type in Trevor Johnson, there's thousands of us out there, so you probably won't find it that way. But yeah, if you just go on Trevor Johnson Bodybuilding or something, you type that in, or fitness, I'm sure the page will come up from that. And the channel's just Trevor Johnson, so... Yeah, those are kind of the two places I think you could find me at. So that would cover it.
0: Awesome. And I will make sure to link those in the description of the episode. And with that, we have arrived to the final question of the episode that we always end on, and that's simply what is
1: your definition of success? Um in terms of life, I'd think is just feeling happy with what you're doing and helping people, I would say would be the biggest thing for me. That's like, for me now, it's fairly working a lot with like one-on-one people, but it's waking up every day and never having that feeling of like, Oh God, it's Monday. I have to go to work. Just really waking up and being like, I get to do this. I get to go and I get to go and talk about fitness every day. Like how fun is that? And you get to connect and help people and see results in individuals. Like that's great. Like it's so that for me is success. Like you're just, Helping people and really just waking up every day, just feeling this happiness of I, I this is my job. I get to do this, like that's great. That for me, that's success.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great answer, and um, that's definitely something I can relate to because I've had much my, my fair share of shitty jobs, and uh, now I do what I absolutely love, and I would never trade it for anything else. So, Trevor, I would like to thank you for. Um, Giving up your time and um, sitting down to have a chat with me. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure we will talk again in the future.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, this is great. I love doing this type of thing.
0: So that was episode 10 of the Muscle Engineer podcast with Trevor Johnson. I hope you enjoyed the episode and um, found at least one valuable thing that you can take and uh, improve your training or your life in general. As I started doing recently, I want to end the episode with um, some of my own thoughts and uh, lessons, I guess, that I took away from the episode. Key point number one is around the whole issue of alcohol consumption and um, fitness. So while it's definitely true that you can balance um, alcohol consumption and um, overall health and uh, body composition goals you have to realize that uh, any alcohol you consume is directly influencing your uh, results in a negative way. So um, at uh, low amounts, the impact might be so insignificant that uh, you don't even notice it. As you start consuming more and more alcohol, the detriments will become more and more visible with the most extreme and uh, obvious example being the outright addiction that uh, I'm sure everyone will want to avoid so if you start noticing that alcohol is directly influencing your uh, behavior and the decisions you make please reach out to someone try to find help second point is around the whole issue of um, sugar or uh, food addiction in general so while the scientific literature is um, indicating that um, sugar addiction per se is not real from a practical point of view like Trevor said the behaviors people engage in are definitely similar to the behaviors alcohol or uh, addicts in general manifest so even though they may not be technically addictive these um hyper palatable um engineered foods are definitely an issue and uh, most people would benefit from reducing their intake especially of the ones that they find They cannot simply moderate Then they can just have one of them. In that case, I think simply avoiding them, it's a better choice. And uh, you got to remember that just because someone decided to make a new product doesn't mean that you have to buy it. And the final point is around training and um, two very important key considerations that were highlighted by Trevor, which I fully agree with are one, the value of tracking your workouts. Whether that be in a logbooking form or using a a phone application like the Fitnotes app I personally use. Whatever it may be, it's super important to actually write down what you did and uh, try to beat that over time. And the other key aspect of training is... uh, ensuring you have proper execution and um, not letting progressive overload or trying to lift heavier and heavier cause a detriment in your execution because um, the overall stimulus on your musculature might be even lower than uh, the one you provided with a slightly lighter weight but your overall injury risk will be higher. So always make sure you lift heavier, heavier over time or you do more and more over time but also, make sure that you're not throwing execution out completely just so you can log a higher number in your uh, logbook. Those were my three key messages that I wanted to leave you with. So, um, as a final reminder, as always, feel free to share the episode with a friend or with someone who would benefit from it. If you're feeling extra generous, you can leave me a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. and. Um, feel free to reach out to me with whatever comments or questions you might have. Until next week, take care.